0: Today's scripture reading is 1 Corinthians 16, verses 12 to 18. Now, concerning our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to visit you with the other brothers, but it was not at all his will to come now. He will come when he has opportunity. Be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. Now, I urge you, brothers, you know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Achaia, and that they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints, be subject to such as these, and to every fellow worker and laborer. I rejoice at the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus, because they have made up for your absence, for they refreshed my spirit as well as yours. Give recognition to such people. You may be seated. Thank you. As you're seated, let me pray for us. Father, we are so grateful for this day that we can gather together in the name of your Son, Jesus, and in the power of your Spirit. We ask you as we look at this text today that you would take it, apply it, help us to uh, learn it and to live it, Lord, that in every area of our life, in everything that we do 24-7, that we might glorify you. Instruct us today through your Word, by your Spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, my name is Brett. I want to add my welcome uh, to John's, and uh, it is my joy to be opening the scriptures here as we come toward the end of our time in First Corinthians. Coming toward the end of our time, looking at the letter that Paul the Apostle wrote to the Church of God in Corinth. And what I want to do today is is highlight one of the problems that was affecting this group of people and see uh, what it might say to us. One of the problems that they are dealing with in the city of Corinth We've been looking at this all the way through our study, but again, to come back to it and bring it front and center once again, uh, <clears throat> the church looked a lot like the city. That was the problem that they had. There were lots of problems they had, but the primary one they had was that the church looked a lot like the city itself in the way they were treating each other, the way they were doing business, the way they were handling their ethics, uh, the way they were living out their faith, the way they were relating to God even. And Corinth is a bit of a wild city. And Paul's letter to the church in Corinth says the church, again, looks a little bit maybe more like the city than it should. And the problem was they were allowing the Corinthian culture and worldview to dominate the way they interacted with the gospel rather than allowing the gospel to transform the way they looked at their interaction with the world around them. Uh, Andrew Wilson wrote about this. He said, it is as if the boundaries between the church and the world had almost disappeared. Some New Testament churches struggled with opposition and persecution from cities around them. The Corinthians faced the opposite problem, assimilation into pagan, promiscuous, competitive, and idolatrous culture. Much of Paul's effort in writing this letter, whether it relates to leadership, sexuality, the nature of the church, idol food, corporate worship, or the resurrection, aims to reestablish the differences between the church and the city, between Christianity and idolatry. That is one of the many reasons why it is such a helpful text for those of us who live in the post-Christian West. Now, Andrew Wilson lives in the city of London in England, and we live in the city of Vancouver in Canada. And those would be post-Christian cities. So if you are hearing this, that's what it's talking about. Culture is very much like ours. That's why the letter to the Corinthians is so helpful for us. If you want to take all of what he said and boil it down into a sentence... You could uh, listen to Lyle Vanderbroek, who said the Corinthians were simply trying to be Christians with a minimal amount of social and theological disturbance. I like that. I like that. If we're honest, though, we feel that, right? Like Christianity is weird. I get that. Um, I didn't grow up in the church. I became a Christian when I was almost 20. Just as an outsider who has now come in, uh, you need to understand Christianity is weird. If you're not a follower of Jesus, you may be sitting here going, yeah. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, we already know. Like, you don't have to let us know. We already know it's weird. It's It should be weird. It should be different. Um, it should be a little bit strange in the way that we go. But we still feel the pressure as followers of Jesus, living in a city like Vancouver, we still feel the pressure to fit in, to go along, to get along, to not cause ripples everywhere that we go with all the things that we believe. We feel the pressure. And the pressure is to have our faith in Jesus maybe be part of our lives, but maybe a peripheral part. Like I have my whole life and then I've got Jesus on the edge or on the margins of it. If I ever need Jesus, I'll talk to him about something. But other than that, I'm pretty good. The center of my life is not really there. He's kind of pressed to the periphery. Maybe he's not the center. That's the experience the church in Corinth had. The challenge we're facing today in Vancouver is living according to the will of God in the midst of a city that doesn't yet know him. We, we live in what you could call contested space. There's a battle going on. It's a battle for your affections and your desires and your dreams and your hopes. We're pressed on one side by how much we should engage the broader culture and then on whose terms we should engage the broader culture. And then on the other side, we're pressed by this call to faithfulness, to following Jesus faithfully, to live our lives in light of the revelation of who God says he is and how he calls us to live. And we've got these pressures that we feel. We know there's one scripturally and there's one culturally. We are in the crossfire of those. The question is, how do we live in light of whatever challenges we're facing? The more pointed question that I want to look at today is, how do we keep Christ at the center of everything we're doing? How do we do that? That's what we need to fight for, and that's what we're going to look at today. Now, John, when he preached on Palm Sunday, did a great job. Uh, he said, uh, I only have one point, point," and then he got a round of applause. It was, it was, it was a little bit odd for me. <clears throat> um, so I'm not above pandering to you for the sake of the gospel. So I have one point today. Yep. We're going to look at spiritual practices that keep Christ at the center of your life. Spiritual practices that keep Christ at the center of your life. I have a lot of sub points. <laughs> That's the one thing we're going to be looking at. Now, I'm only going to take you into verses 13 and 14. So you can send your angry emails about the rest of the text being ignored to someone else. But um, you just info at ChristCityChurch.ca. I think that's the one. Um, we're just going to look at these two verses because that's where we find the practices that I want to focus on. It says in verse 13. Look at the text with me. Be watchful. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. Be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong, do everything in love. Now, one of these is not like the others. (laughs) Let me just say, act like men basically means be courageous, which is how I'm going to be talking about it. Uh, It's kind of like the way verse 15 later on in the text says, um, I urge you brothers. Uh, When it says that, it means brothers and sisters, children of God. It's always included for everybody who is united in faith in the family of God. It's inclusive in that way. It's, it, it's like the way that we used to talk about humanity as mankind. Like when I was growing up in school, that's what all the textbooks said. That was not meant to be exclusive or exclusionary. It was just the way that language worked. Uh, it, it's like being part of the Mennonite brethren family of churches, right? That's not just for the fellas, That that's for everybody who was a part of that family of church. So uh, it's just the way that language works. But the way that language works here, it says act like men. That's actually be courageous. And so we're going to look at it like this. Be watchful, stand firm in the faith. Be courageous, be strong. Now, first, if it was just left to those four things on their own, and verse 14 was absent, you could think this is sort of the same as as any basic military training, right? Be watchful, stand firm, be courageous, be strong. And you go, hoorah. (laughs) That's, That's not exactly what it's saying. So that's exactly what it's saying. This is why we need verse 14 with it, though. Be watchful, stand firm in the faith, be courageous, be strong, let all that you do be done in love. Let all that you do be done in love. Love in this text is touching all four of the others in the same way as your thumb touches all four of your other fingers. It's different, but in its difference, it's not on its own. It's actually working to redefine what all four of the others are like and what all four of the others can do. Be alert, touched by the love of God and the way that we are called to live in love. Standing firm in your faith. Everything you do, do it in love. Be courageous in love. Be strong in love. It's all redefined by love. The love component here reminds us that all four of the others are actually radically Christian things working themselves out through love. In fact, you could say verse 14 is a bit of a summary of what we saw earlier in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, the the love chapter. It's a bit of a summary of that. If you really wanted to, I think you could make the case that this verse, let all that you do be done in love, is really actually a summary of the whole letter of 1 Corinthians. In fact, if you go back into the Gospels and you look at what Jesus was teaching, Jesus got asked by some scholars one day, they said, what's the most important commandment in the law? And he gave them an answer and he said, love God and love your neighbor as yourself. He says, that's actually summarizing the law and the prophets. That's the Old Testament. This is actually a pretty good summary of what the Bible is saying about how we should live out our faith. Let all that you do be done in love. Now hear me. The most defining feature in your life, the most important truth about who you are, as a follower of Jesus, the most defining feature in your life is that you have been loved by God. Think of John, who we're going to look at, at 1 John later. John was one of Jesus' disciples and he wrote the letter to 1 John, but he also wrote the Gospel of John, the, the story of Jesus' life and ministry. He wrote himself into that. He's one of Jesus' disciples. He was there. He wrote himself into that by calling himself the disciple whom Jesus loved. If you were ever to write a story of all the work that Jesus has done in your life, that's who you are. That's your right. Say that you are the disciple that Jesus loved. It's the most defining feature in my life. The most defining feature of my whole life is that I've been loved by Jesus. This is like this is tombstone kind of stuff. You walk through the graveyard one day, you're gonna find me dead and buried. And hopefully my tombstone says something like, he was loved by Jesus, because nothing else matters. Everything else matters a lot, but it pales in comparison to the truth that I've been loved by Jesus. But love is not defined by whatever is popularly uh, understood in culture, whatever is culturally popular. It's not defined by us and our own subjective opinions. Love has to be defined differently than that. Modern Vancouver cultural definitions of love usually start with the individual at the center of where we find meaning because the individual in our culture is the highest authority. And the idea of love in the Bible doesn't start there with the individual. The idea of love in the Bible starts with God. I want to show you what I mean. Verse John chapter 4, verse 7 says, Beloved, Let us love one another for love is from God and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. He is love. If we want to understand, let all that you do be done in love, verse 14, we have to start with God. Craig Blomberg is a wonderful scholar. He said, love without an objective grounding in the living triune God of the universe runs rampant. We have to ground what we understand about love in God. So we don't get to define what love is. We actually receive what love is by coming into right relationship with God who is love. Keep going in, in this text in 1 John 4. It says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. Verse 9. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation or the atonement for our sins. So for John, the beloved disciple, the disciple Jesus loved, for him to say God is love He ties that directly to the reality that God purposed that Jesus would be born into this world to save his people from their sin. That's how he's defining it. The Bible doesn't hide the reality of the ugliness and the brokenness of the world that we live in. It defines it, it explains it, it reveals the source of evil and the pain in the world. And then it reveals the way that God is love, reveals the way God is love overcomes the problem of sin and the effects of sin. James Denny said, for him to say God is love is exactly the same as to say God in his son has made atonement for the sin of the world. And that's, I, I, We can't miss this. God is love, so Jesus Christ came to save his people from their sin. God is love, so Jesus Christ was crucified for the salvation of his people. He paid the ransom price for our sin. In obedience, in dying in our place, he reversed the curse of disobedience and he gained victory for us in our place, dying the death that we deserve to die and then triumphing over death and sin, he was raised from the dead as the resurrected first fruits of a new creation. And that changes absolutely everything. God is love. That's what God is love means. God is love is not supposed to be some sort of sentimental drivel that makes you feel all warm and fuzzy, but then doesn't require anything of you or change your life in any way. See, if God is love, which he is, the text is clear, and if if God is love means the same thing as God has made a way in Jesus for your sin to be forgiven and for the brokenness of the world to be made whole, which it does, then you got to think that on some level this truth that God is love should practically and concretely change your life. And it will. 1 John 4.19 says, We love because he first loved us. We love because he first loved us. So anyone who comes into relationship with God through the finished work of Jesus is currently in the process of being transformed by the love of God. And now, to tie that back to our text, that's why Paul the Apostle can write to the Church of God in Corinth and he can say, Be watchful. Stand firm in the faith, be courageous, be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. That's why he can say that. He loved us first, now we love. So your watchfulness and your standing firm in the faith and your courageous life and your strength are all being transformed by the experience of God's love toward us in Christ. Now I said this before, The battle and what we need to fight for is keeping Christ at the center of everything that we're doing, not allowing him to be pushed to the periphery of life. It's a battleground. But as disciples of Jesus, I just want you to be encouraged that you are equipped for the battle. You're not left alone to figure this out. You have been and are being equipped for the battle of keeping Christ at the center of everything that you do. This happens through our character formation as disciples of Jesus. We're equipped for the battle to keep Christ at the center through the love of God and through the way that we're formed by the teaching of Scripture, all in the power of the Holy Spirit. We are equipped for the task at hand. We're literally being formed in our character through the spiritual practices of being watchful, standing firm in our faith, being courageous, and being strong. And so I just want to look at each of these. These are the practices that we have to give ourselves to and we have to actively live them out. And as we live them out, we're being formed into the kind of disciples who can withstand the problems of the day. Resilient disciples who can continue to follow Jesus in the midst of challenge. So the text says, be watchful. Be watchful. It's the first thing. If I was giving you points, I'd probably say this is point one, but I only have one point. <laughs> Spiritual practices that keep Christ at the center. Be watchful. This is talking about being alert to anything that would draw you away from your faithfulness to God. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8 says, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. It says, resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. I think about the way that we engage the world around us. I just want you to think about this. On one hand, we might think that the best thing we can do to be watchful will be just withdraw from culture altogether. Just whew, just let's all sell everything we've got. Let's go get a commune. Let's buy some land in the Yukon or something. Let's build a commune together. We'll, we'll escape the evil of the world. Well, you're not perfectly whole yet, and neither am I, and so we're going to probably bring a little bit of that evil with us. And uh, history will tell us that the commune thing doesn't usually work out that well. Sometimes that's our instinct, though, is just to say, I'm just going to withdraw from that altogether. I don't know if that's what be watchful means. On the other hand, we might be falling victim to the same problems that they experienced in Corinth, where the church looked a lot like the city they were in and in the way that they conducted themselves. They were, in some senses, indistinguishable from other citizens of Corinth. And that's part of the problem that Paul's addressing as he writes this letter to them. So on one hand, it's very suspicious toward culture. And on the other hand, it's being a tad sleepy toward culture. So you can be suspicious or you can be sleepy, sure, or you can be watchful. And that's a biblical posture of engaging with the world around us. See, we follow Jesus. And because we follow Jesus, we know that there's a way to engage the world around us, fully aware of the problems fully alert to the traps that are set to snare us. But we don't have to remove ourselves from the world in order to follow him. But we also don't have to blend in so much that we're indistinguishable from the world to say that we're really loving people and following him. There's a different way of doing it. Jesus talked about this in John 17. He said, you need to be in the world, not of the world. In the world, present in the world, but not of the world, not from the same source, the same fabric, as the culture around you. So that's good. If we're watchful as we engage the world around us, it's good. We should be. But that's sort of out there stuff, right? That's like the way that we view outside of the Christian family. What about the in here stuff? Are we watchful with regard to our heart? Are we watchful for what's going on on a heart level later in, in John's letter, 1 John 5, 21, he says, little children, keep yourselves from idols. He's saying guard yourself from worshiping someone or something other than the real crucified and risen Jesus. Be watchful, be alert, keep yourselves or guard yourselves. It's all getting at the same kind of watchfulness. But the question is, are you paying attention to your heart? Are you you tending to your desires and what you want? Elise Fitzpatrick said, idols aren't just stone statues. No, idols are the loves, thoughts, desires, longings, and expectations that we worship in the place of the true God. They are the things that we invest our identity in. They are what we trust. Idols cause us to disregard our Heavenly Father in search of what we think we need. Our idols are our loves gone wrong. All those things we love more than we love Him. The things we trust for our righteousness or okayness. As such, I think we have to be alert and watchful for the things out there, yes. But it's the things in here, in our hearts, that are going to trip us up and ensnare us more. We have to know this. If we feel that we must have something, and a particular kind of something, are we taking note? If we think we need a particular kind of something to make us happy apart from Christ, well, we're then noticing and beginning to discern the idols of our heart. This can be your career, it can be your relationship status, it can be your finances, it can be your material possessions. It can be your achievements and your success or the way that others speak about you. It can be your physical beauty or your sexuality. It can be any of these things and it can be a lot more. These things are all good things. They're all good things on their own. But when they become more important or more to be desired than God himself, it means we have elevated them to a place of idolatry. Brad Bigney said, an idol is anything or anyone that captures our hearts, minds, and affections more than God. So we need to be watchful. Keep Christ at the center of it all. Allow nothing to displace him from the center that might press him to the margins of the periphery of your life. I like to think in pictures. I love to have a throne with Jesus on it. And idolatry is any time I have elevated something else in my desires that I want so much that it dethrones Jesus and enthrones that thing or that person. Okay, next. Again, I only have one point. Just following the text, it says stand firm in the faith. Stand firm in the faith. This is following the whole will of God with regard to how we should live. How do we live? How do you take the truth of Scripture, the awareness of the leading of the Holy Spirit, and live it out day by day? Stand firm in the faith. It said earlier in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We looked at this uh, a number of months ago. In verse 1, it says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Do you see what it says in the text? The end of verse 1, in which you stand. It's the foundation you're standing upon. It says if you hold fast, it means you're hanging on to the truth of the gospel. Standing firm in the faith. That's hanging on to your convictions around the sufficiency and centrality of the gospel, but specifically with regard to how it translates into your daily lived experience. When we feel pressed and we feel challenged from many different directions all at the same time, we can begin to waver and be easily tossed to and fro and feel a little unsettled due to every trial and temptation that comes because we're not standing firm in our convictions of what the gospel means to us. And in that sense, we have not translated perhaps what we have come to believe about Jesus and what we understand about the gospel from our head to our heart and then into the work of our hands. there's a translation of that that happens over time as we grow in Christ, where the things that we do are based upon the foundation we're standing on. Now, the opposite of standing is falling. And we need to make sure that we know how to ground our feet in the truth of the good news of Jesus, lest we fall. I hate falling. I hate falling for all of the other reasons that come along. I don't want to fall, but I'll tell you something. I know you're perfect and you're wonderful and you don't have any problems and you came in here today with a big smile on your face and everything's great. Oh, bless God. Just, how's life? Mountaintop experience to mountaintop experience. Never any valleys for me. Everything's good. Honestly, walking this out, I don't even know why I need to be listening to this. This doesn't seem that hard. I just take the centrality of Christ, let it touch every area of my life and I don't have any problems. And I know you're all like that. I'm not, so let me speak out of my experience. I don't want to fall, but sometimes I have to acknowledge that I may stumble. Christ said, e, you will stumble. We're called to stand firm in the faith lest we fall, but I know that we at times stumble, and we need to know what to do when we stumble. When we stumble, we need to be able to discern why is it that I have stumbled in this manner? Why have I perhaps shifted my hope away from the gospel and I've gone to stand on a different foundation? This is what happens. We just we shift our hope a little bit. And the task is then to just repent of that from shifting away from the hope that we have in Christ and, and thinking that we could get what we want without God. So that we repent of that and we just come and we reset our feet firm on the faith again. And God is gracious and he makes a way for us to do that. See, you having a perfect record of standing is not what we're looking at. You having a consistent record of repenting And now that's Christianity. None of us are going to achieve perfection this side of eternity. doesn't mean we don't have an effort to live in ways that glorify God. It just means that that's not going to happen. So what we need to do is never give up repenting. Not stand perfect, or pretend that we're standing perfect, but to be people who never give up on repenting. We reset our feet to stand firm in the faith once again. And you got to hear me. Your best legalistic efforts with all the rules that you make, you know, I hate stumbling too, but, 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 but our inclination is to put a bunch of rules in place that we go, Oh, then I'll never feel that shame again. Well, I'll never feel that way again if I just make enough rules upon the rules and I'm going to take my rules and apply them to you because my rules are good for you too. And we, we build a legalistic structure around us of rules and rules and rules and rules and rules. I, it's not going to get us there because you know what? It's devoid of the power of the Spirit because we're trying to do it in our own strength. You can't. At the same time, you also can't be people who make the foolish assumption that you're not going to (laughs) fall or stumble. So having some boundaries and things like that, they're really, really good. Scripture has them all over the place. But you can't assume that you can do it in your own strength, and you can't assume that you're just not going to fall. That's just unwise. What keeps you standing firm in the faith is an awareness of God that permeates everything you do. It's an awareness of God that you grow in, that permeates everything you do. Klein Snodgrass said, rules never motivate ethical behavior. Awareness of God does. Our inclination is toward rules, oftentimes. What we need is an awareness of God. Stand firm in the faith. Be grounded in the gospel. The best way to do that is to cultivate a scripturally informed awareness of God in every area of our life. I want to say it again. If you want to stand firm in the faith, cultivate a scripturally informed awareness of God in every area of your life. Allow the God who loves you, the God who is love, Allow his love that's working itself out through you, love God and love in everything that you do, allow that to touch every area of your life. That transforms. Next, the text says, be strong and be courageous and be strong. I'm going to group these two together. Called to be watchful or alert. We're called to stand firm in our faith and called to be courageous and be strong. That's what we need to fight for. It's keeping Christ at the center of everything that we're doing. I said it's a battleground, but you're equipped for the battle. Christ City. you can do this. Not because you're particularly strong, but because he is. Not because your grip on him is particularly good, because his grip on you is unrelenting. That's why we started talking about the love of God, and we're translating it now into all of the practices that we have that are transformed by his love. Be courageous and be strong. On one hand... You may think that this is all up to you and that you have kind of a self-centered bravado. That it's the same thing as courage or strength. No. On the other hand, you may have over-spiritualized the feeling of kind of being fearful and weak as though that's a positive. Like your lack of courage is some sort of weird humility. I don't know. But when it comes to the battle of living your faith out day by day, cowardice and fear in this area will lead you to turn your back on God. If the, now, no. if the thing you're battling is sin, it's different. You still have to have courage and be strong. You ever, there's a video that I saw one time. It's, a, it's this guy who's like a black belt in jiu-jitsu or karate or something like that. And the video is like, oh, I'm going to tell you how to handle yourself if someone pulls a knife. I'm like, I'll watch that. Might happen to me sometime. I live in the vicious hoods of southern Vancouver. Here we are. (laughs) So he goes, okay, if someone pulls a knife on you, I'm going to show you the move that will help you to handle things so that you can take care of yourself and your loved ones. He's kind of like, you know, he's got that voice, right? And then the video starts and he goes, okay, so here's what you do. If someone pulls a knife on you, and then he just turns around and sprints. And he runs down the alley the opposite direction And I'm talking about that's good If the battle you have is sin The most courageous thing you can do is run So let's be really clear about that That is strong Okay, That is strong Either way What we all need is a good dose of Holy Spirit inspired courage A good dose of Holy Spirit inspired strength In our inner self That's what we need Because I'll tell you, when you need to draw on it, you're going to need a reservoir. You don't want to get into the moment when you need courage and go, "Uh uh-oh, I have not cultivated this. There was a man named George Mueller, uh, 19th century Bristol, England. Started a bunch of orphan houses and schools. uh, A man of deep faith. Uh, his his life was, I'm never going to ask anyone for money. I'm just going to keep doing all the things God's called me to do, and I'm going to pray. It's the only thing I'm going to do for the funds that we need to run the orphan houses. He started a mission society that was handing out Bibles. They were funding missionaries overseas, and he also was leading a church. And his whole thing was, we're never going to ask for money. We're just going to, I'm just going to pray. And so him and his like inner team, that's all they would do. A m- remarkable story of faith. I've been, I've been listening to this book, and it's so faith-building. I always think to myself when I hear heroes of the faith like that, what, what was the thing that made them tick? Like, I, I want to get a hold of that. Because you know what? I kind of, I could use some help. I want to do great things for the Lord. I want to honor God with my life. I, I want to be watchful and stand firm in the faith and be courageous and be strong. And maybe George Mueller can help me. So I'm listening to this book and I'm I'm thinking, okay, here we go. I'm going to get that secret sauce. What's that thing that he did? Let me, let me show you. Oh, That's what he said. He said, I saw more clearly than ever that the first great and primary business to which I ought to attend every day was to have my soul happy in the Lord. The first thing to be concerned about was not how much I might serve the Lord, how much I might glorify the Lord, but how I might get my soul into a happy state and how my inner man might be nourished. I was like, I don't know if that would sell many books today, honestly. Because he goes on at great length to explain where his nourishment comes from. Here's what he does. It says, it says, I saw more clearly than every day the first and great primary business to which I ought to attend every day was to have my soul happy in the Lord. Do you know how he did it? It's going to blow your mind. He just opened his Bible every single morning and read it until he was drawn into it and he was compelled by the Spirit into prayer every single day. That's the first thing he did. The most important thing he did was get himself in God's Word and spend time in prayer. I was like... I didn't need an audiobook to tell me that. <laughs> I already knew that. But sometimes we forget, right? It's right here. I want to be courageous and strong. Start here, get it in you. So I'm going to follow George Mueller's example. And so I'm, I'm on my Bible reading plan. And uh, last week I was on my Bible reading plan. I'm in Numbers, Book of Numbers. <laughs> Actually, I was on the book of Numbers the week earlier, but I'm a week behind, like most people who follow Jesus. And so (laughs) I'm reading the book of Numbers. The point is, I'm reading the story about Caleb and Joshua, who were among this group that Moses had sent ahead to spy out the promised land. And their story is a story of faith-filled courage that is contrasted with the fear-filled cowardice of their peers. Now, let me set this up. The people of Israel are in the wilderness because God has delivered them from slavery and bondage that they were in in Egypt. So they were back in Egypt. They were all slaves for generations. And God through a bunch of miraculous stuff and he used Moses to uh, execute his plans. But through a whole bunch of miraculous means, God delivers his people from slavery and he brings them into the wilderness on their way into the land that he had promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob hundreds of years before. They've got a promise from God that they're gonna inherit this land. And so God delivers them from Egypt, brings them into the wilderness, and Moses goes, hey, I'm going to build a team, want some people, kind of the head, everybody represented, every tribe, bring somebody in, I'm going to send them as spies into the land. I want to know what the land is like. I want to know if it's fruitful. I want to know what the cities are like. Are they fortified? Are they just villages? How are they living over there in the land of promise? He goes, I want to know what the people are like. Are they strong? Are they weak? Are they together and unified? What's going on? So he sends this group, including Caleb and Joshua, into the, into the promised land to go ahead and to spy it out for them. And then he says, I want to report. So they come back. And they go, oh, we're back. Moses goes, well, how's the land? And they go, oh, Moses, it's a good land. It's a land filling with flowing with milk and honey. And Moses goes, yeah, like I'm thinking inside Moses is like, that's what God promised, that's right. And they go, oh, but the people are big. I don't know. This is the same generation that had experienced the miraculous provision of God delivering them from slavery, brought them through the dry ground of the Red Sea, and then had been providing for them daily with manna. Fresh bread from heaven every morning. And they're like, I don't think we can do it. (laughs) Oh, I fit in so good with them. I'd love to read myself into this story as Caleb, but I know. Caleb's like, whoa, 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 fellas. Yeah, the land is filled with giants, but God promised it to us. We can do it. He believes that because he's walking with God and that God has promised to never leave them nor forsake them, that they can take the land that he promised them. This is what happens. Numbers chapter 14, verse 1. Then all the congregation raised a loud cry and the people wept that night. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, would that we had died in the land of Egypt or that we had died in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones. We'll become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. (laughs) Moses is like, his first church split on his hands here. <laughs> See for them, these people who are receiving the bad report and they're filled with fear, not courage, they're filled with weakness, not strength. For them, the known bondage of slavery in Egypt. And the predictability of what they had to deal with in their slavery in Egypt is more familiar to them and therefore more comfortable to them than the unknown of the future promises of God. This maps right onto our life as disciples of Jesus. Like, I liked my bondage. I know it. It's warming to me and comfortable. Fits me like that nice sweater I have. I'm a little afraid of going out into the cold following God. But see, they were being led day by day by God, by a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night, and they've been following him around as he led them. But they lacked the courage and the strength to walk by faith because they didn't trust the guide. They didn't trust that God was going to deliver the promises he had made to them. Now this sort of angers the Lord. It kindles his anger, it says and Moses has to get into he has to get into intercessory prayer mode he has to start asking god not to just kill them all it's a whole thing but look back at verse 3 for a second i want to make a very specific point here it says why is the lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword our wives and our little ones will become a prey would it not be better for us to go back to egypt see these people who are speaking say that they are concerned for their kids I know what that's like. I get that. We planted this church nearly 10 years ago, and I've had consistent conversation with parents about fear of what's going on in our culture around us with regard to children. But the intensity of that parental fear has only been compounded as culture continues to shift away from what we would see as biblical truth towards something else. And I just want to say, what you do with your fear, what you do with your fear about life, it really matters. These people were afraid enough of what might happen to their kids that they were willing to go back into slavery They understood the slavery, and they were willing to go back into the slavery they understood rather than go forward into the promises of God, but they didn't. And God speaks to them. Verse 26. And the Lord spoke to Moses and to Aaron, saying, How long shall this wicked congregation grumble against me? I've heard the grumblings of the people of Israel, which they grumble against me. Say to them, As I live, declares the Lord, what you have said in my hearing, I will do to you. Your dead bodies shall fall in this wilderness, and all of your number listed in the census from 20 years old and upward have grumbled against me. Not one shall come into the land where I swore that I would make you dwell, except Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, the son of Nun." but your little ones, who you said would become a prey, I will bring in, and they shall know the land that you have rejected. Christ City, he's in control. The best thing for the next generation is not fear-filled protectionism, but faith-filled obedience. To help our children be conformed into the image of Christ. That's what it looks like to be strong and courageous in the moment we live. And that's what courage and strength looks like when it's lived out. Let's teach them how to live as a minority people in a majority culture where they stand out like lights shining in the darkness. Parents and those who would like to be parents one day, I just want you to remember that your kids are learning more from the way that you and those around you who you are close with are practically living out the gospel each and every day. They're learning more about that than anything else. Keep that in front of them. Model a life of faith-filled obedience. Be watchful. Be alert. Yes. Tend your heart. Stand firm in the faith. Be courageous and be strong. That looks like being the non-anxious presence in the midst of a bunch of anxious, anxious people. The non-anxious presence is the person who can stand with their faith anchored in God, trusting Him completely to do what He has promised. And let all that you do be done in love. Amen? Amen. Would you please stand with me as we respond?